of the Spears podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. Welcome back. If you're a listener, I really appreciate your time. If you're new here, my name is Sabrina Monarch, and I'm an evolutionary astrologer who writes weekly forecasts at monarchastrology.com. And I'm getting ready to go to Bali. I'm leaving in September. So I've been getting ready for that trip and feeling pretty introspective, doing a lot of self-work, really figuring out how to get a better handle on some of my patterns that I want to shift. And I'm just making slow, incremental, positive changes every day and feeling really good about it. So that's where I'm coming from today. As far as today's episode... Do you feel like you've been here before in another life? And if so, what does that say about the meaning of this current life? I reached out to one of my biggest intellectual influences on karma and reincarnation to invite him onto the show to explore these ideas. Since reincarnation is not necessarily unpacked in great detail in our conventional education or our social conditioning, if at all, and That's not to say that, you know, it it really depends on the culture and the family, etc. But in a lot of cases, reincarnation can be fringe, right? Because of this, there are actually a lot of rich nuances to explore this phenomenon that really guarantee conversations like this one today will hold some lightning flashes. Personally, reincarnation is not an idea that I just entertain It's something that's a deep knowing inside of me and has completely revolutionized how I participate with reality. Recording this episode had gotten me to reminisce on what it felt like to first awaken into this life as a soul, to identify with a being who was not just Sabrina, but the being incarnated as Sabrina this time around. And this sounds like it could be removed or something like that, but it actually helped me invest emotionally in my life more and with a better and with deeper ground, um, knowing that there was more to life. It gave me a really strong sense of courage to live fully into this incarnation. And I mean, before that experience of kind of awakening as a soul, my current life ego was all I had to go off of And that didn't leave me all that resilient to the fluctuations of life. And so when I say that I'm awakened as a soul, I don't mean that with a sense of like, oh, I'm awakened. I think that would be a little bit silly to proclaim. What I mean is that there is no doubt in my mind that I am a soul and that I toggle constantly or see through both lenses at all times of myself as a soul and myself as the ego incarnation that is Sabrina Monarch. And that was something that happened. It wasn't a way that I always was. You know, maybe actually, if I think about it, I was a very observant and kind of, I had a deep kind of witness consciousness throughout my childhood from a very early age, but I didn't really think of it as like, the difference between my soul and my ego. And astrology actually is a really amazing language to discover the soul through. That's that's what got me into my consciousness of being a soul. But I mean to say basically that from my own felt experience of feeling myself as a soul and seeing myself as a being who has been here before, um, it has gotten me to think that as we explore karma and reincarnation and explore ourselves as souls, this really can lead to a more embodied and meaningful current incarnation. We're able to zoom out and see the bigger picture of why we're here. And then we can seed that awakening into our ordinary lives. Ideally, I hope today's episode can be an inspiration to begin exploring your own soul in this deeper way or to deepen your ongoing soul exploration. And it is, it's constant. The soul 
is mysterious too. It's like, not just like, because I know that I'm a soul that I know my soul entirely, you know, it's always something that I'm getting to know just as I'm getting to know my ego in this life and figuring out what her desires and preferences are and doing what I can to align my life to be happy with my unique preferences, you know? Um, anyways, I'm very excited to introduce Christopher Bache to you, who is the guest that I had on to talk about karma and reincarnation. Bache is a academic who has taught and written about reincarnation and karma. He is now 70 years old, and he threw himself into and studied himself out of religion before his first Saturn return, which as you may know is around the age of 29. And it was then that he encountered information about reincarnation at a Saturn return, and this became a fruitful path of research and writing for Beish from that point onward. Over 40 years of study, work, and integration of these themes leads to his latest forthcoming book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven, in which he shares his vision of the collective process of evolution at play, where we're not just reincarnating to eventually become ascended and leave the Earth— but to be fully awakened here on earth in space and time and to, in a sense, elevate the trajectory of earth also, that this isn't just a rock of suffering and tests that we one day get to leave when we're enlightened or whatever, but that there is something that is also happening and evolving here in the 3D, if you will. His earlier book, Life Cycles, is an essential to me. This is Life Cycles, Reincarnation in the Web of Life. And I encourage all of my students to read this book alongside our study of evolutionary astrology when I teach courses. I was delighted to find out when I contacted Chris that his wife is an evolutionary astrologer. I didn't have the idea or expectation that Beish would know about the nodes of the moon or Saturn returns, but I had found that Life Cycles was this brilliant text to recommend to my students because of how complexly he unpacks karma and reincarnation in that book. And evolutionary astrology is about reading the natal chart from the perspective of the soul's ongoing evolution. So in addition to teaching the astrology concepts and archetypes and the techniques, I do teach my students about reincarnation and karma, and Beisha's work has been pivotal Um, in my own understanding of karma and my ability to communicate some of these themes to others. And I've called this book breathtaking because when I first read it, I literally would find myself gasping and having to really sit with the lightning bolts popping off in my brain that the book triggered in me. So I hope you'll prepare yourself for one of those conversations that gets you really starry-eyed. Perhaps you'll wonder about not just what you'll be doing tomorrow or next year, but what you'll be doing in the next thousand years. But first, let's break it down. Here's my conversation with Chris Beish. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hi, Sabrina. It's a pleasure to join you today. So I've been teaching evolutionary astrology, and when I first started developing this course, a friend of mine gave me your book, Life Cycles, and it really resonated with what I understood about karma from an astrology perspective. And I also Mm -hmm. learned so much um, from your work. So it's really exciting to have you here. Thank you very much. It was a good book to write, pleasure to write, and it's nice to see it's uh, still being useful for people. Oh, definitely is. And so before um, we dive into karma and reincarnation, I'm curious to hear what started you on this path of being interested in this and developing theories. Yeah, well, actually, it's kind of an interesting twist of fate. I was not raised in a reincarnating world, a worldview. I was raised in the Deep South in Mississippi. Uh, I was raised in a Catholic home and actually wanted to be a priest from the earliest I can remember, was kind of aimed in a spiritual direction uh, at no encouragement from my parents, but just where I wanted to go. Uh, eventually, I was in a high school seminary. I started University of Notre Dame as a seminarian, left after my first year, uh, stayed at Notre Dame, studied theology, did a master's in New Testament criticism at Cambridge, and then a PhD in philosophy of religion at Brown University. Nowhere in those studies had reincarnation come up and had been taken seriously. When I finished graduate school, I was a confirmed atheistically inclined agnostic. 
I basically had uh, studied my way out of religion altogether. I was interested in human potential, but I was not interested in theology anymore at all. And when I started teaching at Youngstown State in Northeast Ohio, I came across two people's work immediately in that first year, changed the course of my life. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I was going through my Saturn return. So when I was 29, 30, I encountered the work of Ian Stevenson, uh, Carlson professor at the University of Virginia, and his work convinced me of the reality of reincarnation, which caused me to erase my entire intellectual blackboard and start from scratch because it just wasn't part of my undergraduate or graduate education that this could possibly be true. The other person whose work changed my life was Stanislav Grof and his work in psychedelic uh, therapy. Uh, And that was a method that gave me experiential access to these deeper levels of consciousness some of those levels in which are stored are former life memories. So between the two of them, my life took a pronounced pivot. In my first sabbatical, because uh, I could only write books really during sabbaticals, I wrote a response to Ian Stevenson, which is the book on reincarnation, Life Cycles. And on my second sabbatical, I wrote a book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, which was my first response to Stan Groff's work in the LSD therapy work. But it was really Ian Stevenson that really showed me the, the, a world where reincarnation was a fact of life. However, his work did not explain sufficiently how a reincarnating universe worked. It didn't give me enough information, and his vision was clearly not deep enough to incorporate all the phenomena that we were looking at with reincarnation. So I started reading the past life therapy literature, reading the uh, spiritual literature on reincarnation, uh, doing a lot of studies, reading the rest of Ian Stevenson's books, bringing it to my students. And after I had been working this material with my students for about seven or eight years or so, I wrote uh, Life Cycles. Mm, So a seven-year Saturn cycle for that, too. (laughs) I guess so, yeah. So what is the evidence you feel for reincarnation being a part of this reality? Well, I think there are two basic bodies of evidence, one having to do with what I would call evoked memories and the other one with uh, spontaneous memories. Of the two, the evidence surrounding spontaneous memories is the philosophically most important body of evidence for reincarnation. And here we have Stevenson's research and other researchers who have studied children from around the world who, when they first begin to be able to speak when they're two, two and a half years old, they start start to speak matter-of-factly about this other life that they remember having lived. And they speak very casually about the people they knew in that life, about the circumstances in which they live. These children, and and we've been able to get to enough of these children and document enough of their memories in great detail and eliminate reasonably the likelihood that they acquired this knowledge through natural or physical means in contact with the family of the first personality. We've been able to study these children in enough detail that cumulatively uh, this body of evidence is just... um, Well, I think of reincarnation as like plate tectonic theory. It's hard to see in the beginning, but once you see it, it changes everything. Uh, And so these children know details about the events of their previous life. They know details about persons that they were related to, about things that happened in the lifetime of that life. They know uh, intimate secrets of family history which are very unusual to have gotten out of the out of the family. There was one case even when this child was brought back to the family of the first personality. When uh, this child was confronting the wife of the former personality, the wife said, okay, if you're the reincarnation of my husband, where's your will? We've looked all over and we can't find your will. This child walked into the kitchen pulled up a a floorboard from the kitchen floor and pulled up the will from underneath the kitchen floor. That type of detail and precision of memories, hundreds and hundreds of cases like that, uh, 
lays a very, very strong body of evidence for reincarnation. The second body of evidence for evoked memories comes out of past life therapy. Uh, people who have just are following their pain, usually going as deeply as they can to find the source of their pain. The research is clear that about a third of the people who are doing this work through deep regressive reincarn uh, hypnosis, for example, will spontaneously pop up inside a previous life where the some type of trauma from that previous life seems to have formed the seed of their incarnational uh, pattern in this lifetime. So two different bodies of evidence, they need to be evaluated using different processes, but cumulatively, I think they have basically established a, a I think an extremely strong empirical case for reincarnation. 50 years ago, it was a speculative hypothetical case. Today, I think it's a, it's a very strong empirical case. Wow, that's amazing. And so we have reincarnation as something that we have evidence for, but what is the implication in a philosophical or a cosmological sense of what's happening here? Like, why do we reincarnate yeah. and what's going on with karma? Yeah. Well, I think it changes everything. I mean, I, I focused on this as my first book project because I couldn't think of any question that would have farther reaching ramifications for whether we, for the meaning, our questions about the meaningfulness of life, than whether we incarnate only once or we incarnate multiple times, whether we're here only once or we're here multiple times. And it hinges, I think, on time. If I give a quiz in one of my classes, for, and it's a 10-minute quiz, I have a right to expect a certain caliber of answer. If I give a, uh, a take-home exam, well, then I naturally expect a higher quality of answer. And if I give them a research paper, I expect a still higher quality of answer because it hinges on the question of time. How much time do they have to complete the task? So if we, if the universe has a purpose, if life has a purpose, what that purpose can be is reflecting, I think, the depth of that purpose reflects the depth of the quantity of time we have to fulfill that purpose. And what reincarnation does is that it lifts the limitation of time on the human experience. It allows us to ask deeper questions of our life, our, the project of the, our, our life, the, how our life fits into the larger project of the universe itself. It allows us to participate more actively in this ancient, ancient, intentional, purposive galaxy, cluster of galaxies, supercluster of galaxies that we're part of. And, and it tells, basically tells us that we are part of the universe's unfolding for countless eons of time. And in this respect, reincarnation is, to me, simply a higher octave of evolution. So reincarnation and evolution are kind of hand-in-glove concepts. Beautiful. And it seems that um, from what I've understood about karma from reading you and from working with astrology is that the decisions mm -hmm. that we make in prior lives influence this current life. And so yes. you wrote this quote that um, I'm going to recall it and hopefully, yeah, express what it is. But you were saying that there's a lot of, or the sense I'm getting that there's a lot of possibility in this universe, but we make choices that then condition the realities that ensue. And then these realities inspire new choices. And so there's a certain narrowing that can occur in terms of possibility based on choices yeah. we've made in the past. Um, and so I'm curious yeah. to hear your take on, you know, karma is not about uh, punishment per se. Like, I think that that's a misconception of yeah. karma, but what is karma yeah. in a, in a neutral sense and how do people work with it? Yeah. I think there are some pretty heavy handed misinterpretations that run in our culture around karma that is deterministic, uh, that it's about punishment, that it's about um, that it's entirely private, that my karma is not connected to the karma of people around me or the karma of our species. And I think those are fundamental mistakes. 
A more neutral conception of karma, I think, simply is in terms of cause and effect. It's, it's simply a subcategory of cause and effect. The universe is a tapestry of cause and effect. Karma simply refers to one specific subset of cause and effect, the cause and effect that conditions consciousness. So every choice we make has ramifications, sets in process certain ramifications, certain conditionings. We are constantly inheriting those conditions. In the context of that new set of environment, new environment, we make new choices, which sets in motion new feedback processes. In some ways, I think it's like um, choosing courses before the semester begins. At the beginning of the semester, you can study anything you want, and there's many, many areas of courses and subjects in which you may want to study. But once you choose your courses and once you choose your professors for the semester, your options shrink to the courses you're taking this semester. Then you jump into the course, and then you're in a, in, in a dialogue and engaged, and you're meeting people in the course. You're working, and it will be well, – you won't come out of that for another semester. And then you'll have an opportunity to make new choices for your next courses, and what you learn this semester will influence how you handle next semester. I think it's like that with reincarnation too. So the basic dynamic, I think, is when we die – we expand into our soul consciousness, into our larger consciousness that holds all of our incarnations. When we choose an incarnation, we constrict our consciousness to a particular set of circumstances within which we've chosen to learn. Male body, female body, rich, poor, beggarman, thief, the whole scenario with our options. We jump in, we engage, we learn. At the end of our life, we expand into this interlife condition, a much more spacious condition, the condition of the soul. Then we choose again. We incarnate into deliberately chosen conditions. So uh, my sense is that karma, cause and effect, simply refers to the, the idea that we inherit with each incarnation every time we are born – we choose the time of our incarnation. We choose the place. With the choice of time and place comes a certain inevitability of conditions. Within those conditions, we're continuing to choose. Basically, we're learning organisms. We are constantly learning. And we're, we learn by inheriting the consequences of the choices we make, both the choices before we incarnate and the choice we make after we incarnate, once we're inside the, the course for the semester, so to speak. So when we're having challenges or difficulties in life that are reoccurring patterns, it could be something yeah. that we've inherited karmically. What do you think is the, the purpose of working with karma in an individual lifetime of uncovering maybe some patterns? Or um, is there a way that we can elevate the trajectory of our life by making better choices? Like, what do you think we're here to do? Absolutely. Uh, well, that's a big question. What are we here to do? Because that, that question is, what is the purpose of existence? What is the purpose of reincarnation as a totality? And that's a huge question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in the Hindu sources, they basically look at the seven chakras, right? The basic centers of awareness within a person, starting at the lowest one of simply survival to pleasure to power, the fourth chakra of compassion, the fifth of sort of paranormal insight or spiritual insight, uh, moving oh, creativity, spiritual insight, and then uh, non-dual oceanic consciousness. Their view is that these are the seven themes of human existence that we're basically always playing with these seven mm, notes, you might say, and we're creating a symphony based upon those notes. In one's earlier lifetimes, you may only be playing at the lower end of that spectrum. In one's late lifetimes, one may be playing primarily at the upper end of that spectrum, but we're always combining those different themes. I think that's not a bad starting place to understand that when you look out at all the people who are on the planet, all billions and billions of us, all of us are, are working in some way on these selective themes in our maturational development. Now, I think that we can go farther than that. We can really begin to, once we understand that our life isn't over 
when this body dies. It has a prehistory and it has a post-history. It has a trajectory. We are growing somewhere. So then the question isn't, we, we outgrow basically all the cultural norms of what's good or bad, what's desirable and undesirable. These are all culturally specific, historically embedded memes of that. But once you sort of plug into a vision where time is open-ended, the only question we should be asking ourselves is, what do you want to be in a thousand years? What do you want to be able to do in 10,000 years? Once we're part of this long, long development, then it's like coming to a university or a universe of infinite potential and saying, okay, what potential do I want to develop for the next hundred years? What potential do I want to develop for the hundred years after that? Then along this long spectrum, we have an open-ended we have an open-ended series of possibilities to become a Mozart, to become an Einstein, to become a, a political genius, to become a Gandhi, to become a Martin Luther King, to become a great artist, a great social activist. We have open-ended time to become all of those things. Uh, and karma is, the, is simply the fact that the universe structures our learning experience in response to our choice of what we want to learn okay so it's just an open-ended development some people are really for example working on strengthening and empowering their individuality so power is important Uh, uh, being able to secure uh, a well-being, a psychological integrity is important, and they're wrestling with things which challenge their psychological integrity or challenge their physical survival. Other human beings are learning compassion, the ins and outs of compassion. How much of myself should I give away? Can I give away too much? What happens when I give away everything? Uh, what's the balancing there? Other people are learning creativity how to play the waves of creativity, how to enter into deeply creative states of awareness. And still others are beginning to experiment with touching into the level of their being, which is so deep, we truly start to describe it in terms of the infinite or the the divine within. These are all different life tasks. And basically, I think uh, we shouldn't judge anybody for their life tasks, but we should when we try to fulfill our own, everything gets much easier, much more relaxed. It sounds that um, some of the things that we're developing might bring us in touch with our deepest challenges. So it puts the context of our biggest adversities or the struggles that we go through in a context of that's the resistance training in a sense that's helping us yeah. grow in a certain way. So yeah. um that is really that can be empowering, I imagine, for people. It has been for me when it comes to yeah. astrology and thinking about why I've had certain difficulties. Um, yeah. And so, when it gets hard, is when life gets juicy. Yeah, <laughs> and so I think I'm I'm wondering <laughs> about how you perceive the role of suffering in this, and also. Um, which is another question, but maybe also potentials for reincarnation to be somewhat nonlinear. I think you had an example in your book of someone who had these different paths of different states of power, like being a king or being super poor or and like kind Mm -hmm. of going between. So it's not necessarily like every lifetime there's a certain gradient of wealth increase or something, but that a person could flip between many different types of lives that fall under a different category of something that they're learning, if that makes sense. I think so. Like if you wanted to study mathematics at a university, you might do that for several semesters. And then you step back and you say, well, you know, I think I'd like to study something else for a while. And you shift to studying music or art. And you're kind of a beginner in art, but that doesn't mean you're a beginner student. It it means you're just starting this particular set of study skills um, afresh. And I think it's like that in life, too. We we challenge ourselves. We want to learn something else. We go into another direction for a few lifetimes. But the deeper question here uh, has to do with suffering. And here we confront this fact that life is just hard. 
I mean, there are some people who seem to be born with a silver spoon and life is incredibly easy, but even for them, there are hard aspects. And in the end, we all die in this look around us and we're this tremendous amount of suffering. And uh, I think here we have to take seriously our individual responsibility for our own suffering. I mean, there's there's no there's no moving through the hard challenges in life without moving directly into what we are confronting, however difficult it is. And at the same time, I think we have to understand that whatever is happening to us individually and whatever is happening to humanity generationally and how whatever is happening in a larger evolutionary sequence uh, – that there is a certain amount of suffering that's built into the evolutionary project that has let, brought the human race to where we are at this moment in time, that, it, that we don't have complete control over our body with the power of our mind. We don't have complete capacity to understand everything that's bubbling up inside our deep psyche or in the world around us. But if we keep working, we keep processing, we keep engaging, we learn more. We learn more about ourselves. We learn more about the people around us, we actually begin to be able to control more and more of our physical, mental, uh, and psychological and spiritual process. Uh, I'm getting a little lost in my thought stream here. Uh, you may have to bring me back. Sure. That It's having me wonder about... Yeah, personal evolution being part of collective evolution. And when I first started studying astrology, one of the biggest breakthroughs yeah. that I got was that the it's also as above, so below, but it's as within, so without. And that it's in yeah. my agency at a far greater level to evolve myself than it is to try to make the yeah. world around me different. But that as I evolve myself, yeah. I help the world evolve. And so I... I'm yes. wondering what you think about collective evolution, um, because reincarnation, you know, has that individual element. But yeah. what is the collective doing through the individual? Yeah, I think it's a both and situation. I think we're all fractally embedded in larger fields of consciousness and larger strands of the universe. So my individual karma is a strand within a larger tapestry of collective karma. And our species collective karma is part of a strand in the planet's evolutionary continuing evolving dynamic as this planet, the, the galaxy continues to grow more and more sophisticated, complex forms of conscious awareness uh, here. So when we are inside our incarnate lives, it feels like it's, all us, us, us. It just feels so heavy sometimes, the circumstances that we're, we are facing, and we want to know, why me? Why me? But when we really engage deeply the karmic challenges that we face, and if we engage them with whole heart and, and complete determination, and we begin to work through those issues, and we begin to uncover that pain, release those that painful past, open up into a, a, a richer, more creative future. Part of that process actually involves the discovery that actually our individual story and our individual pain is actually part of a collective process, a collective dynamic, uh, so that when we are addressing our individual karma, we actually are simultaneously engaging the karma of others, the karmas of the world. And we find this in past life therapy. When someone makes a, a major breakthrough in their personal or private issue, uh, it, it has a ramification. So when we, when we solve our individual issues, when we address those issues and work through them, there is this experience that, well, we weren't in here alone after all. Anyway, we actually we are really working side by side with lots of people that we may never meet, never know, but they're here. That's profound. I wonder, too, you wrote in your book, it was a Q&A part um, in Life Cycles about someone asking, you know, if this is a karmic situation and there's people who are suffering or people who um 
are underprivileged in some way or like what what role do we have in changing that and not just saying like oh it's just karma like yeah karma it has been used for many ulterior purposes or early approximate understandings that I think have shown themselves not to be sufficient over time. One of them is when we face suffering around us, it is easy to say, well, that's their karma. I don't have to do that. I don't have to worry about that. That's their karma. But it may be our karma precisely to be exposed to somebody's suffering so that we can engage uh, that aspect of suffering in the world. And I think the great beings that we respect in the spiritual traditions are beings who uh, take on responsibility for the suffering of people around them. That's the great Bodhisattva tradition in Buddhism. I think that's the fundamental message of Christ on the cross, that uh, we take on, we don't sort of be stingy in our willingness to engage the pain of the world. When we see someone suffering, uh, we can never really judge why they're suffering. Um, I think there are many beings, uh, many beings, particularly now at this time in history, who have incarnated with the express intent of not working just on their own private karma, but as part of their personal growth to engage much deeper collective processes. I think, for example, when we're, well, I'll stay away from examples that people who sometimes suffer greatly are not suffering for just personal, private mistakes they've made, if it were, but they are suffering on behalf of others who may be less able to help dig themselves out of this morass that they've come into. And they, they're basically working to alleviate a suffering which is trapped deep within the collective psyche. So when we see someone suffering, we're either seeing a sinner, a saint, or a combination of both, and we can never tell which it is. The safest way, I think, is just to not make judgments, just to dig in and do as much good as we can and help as much as we can in every circumstance. So that is really fascinating. Um, I think of, yeah, I've had the experience of having ideas come through if I'm in a kind of channeling space that don't feel like they're mm-hmm. necessarily just for me. They are mm-hmm. in one level, especially with astrology. It's like the yeah. planets are affecting the whole field yeah. of consciousness at the same time. It can be very personal, but also a collective thread is happening at the same time. And I have thought yeah. about that as well in terms of yeah. when people are going through something, we we can't really judge why or how karma is acting with them because it doesn't necessarily mean that they've done something bad and they're being punished. They may be undergoing a task for development of themselves and the collective. So that is a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. We have to completely separate suffering and punishment, which, you know, suffering punishment is an interpretation of suffering, but I think it's a false interpretation. You know, best yeah. to completely separate those two. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I wonder if the the whole thing about punishment is a collective karma in of itself, in a sense that there was so much conditioning around believing in punishment yeah. and that that's yeah. a process. Yeah. I think the early kind of some of the early writing, the early religious writing on reincarnation tended to focus there. And I think the later writing tends to sort of see it within a teaching experience, a learning experience, which is just about challenging, self-challenging ourselves. One of the ways we challenge ourselves is by confronting circumstances in which we inherit the flip side of choices that we've made in previous lifetimes. So if we've chosen to be stingy or we've chosen to be violent, we inherit the consequences of other people being stingy with us or other people being violent with us. But much of our, I think many of our challenges that we faced are not some sort of a simple uh, reciprocity to simple choices made. They're much more complex. They're much more inviting us to grow into deeper dimensions of our own being, deeper dimensions of uh, about the life of our species. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Your thinking about reincarnation has continued to evolve. And I'm curious where you are now with thinking about um, collective evolution. Yeah. Well, when I wrote Life Cycles, which I think is, you know, it's a good book. It has stood up to the test of time. I think it it still holds true. Uh, And I think from my current perspective, it's uh, limited by in a couple of ways. The primary way it's limited in that is that when I wrote that book, I was still under the influence of the religions of the Axial Age, both Western and Eastern religions. And these religions tend to see the fulfillment of the human experiment taking place off planet. They're up and out cosmologies. So you achieve salvation, you go to heaven, you achieve nirvana. I mean, you achieve yeah, nirvana, and then you you end up in a Buddhist cure land afterwards. So the whole culmination of human endeavor results in some type of transformation of the human condition, and then we leave time and space. And time and space does not participate in our salvation. It's just something we leave behind. I think that's an incomplete cosmology. I think all the religions of the last several thousand years reflect this incompleteness. Now that we have a much deeper understanding of the true age of the universe, we're beginning to see into the larger patterns of evolution of the universe. We're beginning to understand that it's billions of years further in the making. And now that we have evidence for reincarnation, we see our lives as part and process of this larger developmental story. I think it leads to a different understanding of what the purpose of reincarnation is. The purpose, I think, is not to achieve a simple spiritual awareness of our divine nature. And then with that awareness of our essential nature, we simply escape samsara and are free to now leave the conditions of time and space. I think a deeper understanding of reincarnation is that we not only achieve an awakening to our divine nature, but in awakening to it, we potentiate that nature in the field historical action so that we don't simply wake up as a divine being having human experience. We actually change the fundamental dynamic of that human experience. The purpose of reincarnation, I think, is to wake up and then to empower and help participate, engage the evolutionary process to take it into its next step. I don't think Sri Aurobindo said that humanity was an intermediate species. It's an it's an in-between species between where we have been in the past and where we are going in the future. So my current thinking on reincarnation moves in that direction, sees reincarnation as leading not to an off-planet paradise but to a paradise that we are building inside time and space to a true transformation of the human condition. In this respect, I also, well, here's where some of my psychedelic work and the work I've done with Stan Groff's methodologies have influenced my academic study of reincarnation. Because in my experiential work, I was taken repeatedly a number of times into what appeared to be the evolutionary trajectory of the human species and the evolutionary trajectory that's being underwritten by reincarnation. Because the classic way of thinking about reincarnation is lifetime by lifetime, we make incremental progress. Sometimes we regress, but mostly we make incremental progress to a better life, better life, better life eventually. But I think that is too small an understanding of the dynamics of reincarnation. Reincarnation accumulates an effect, not only in spiritual reality when we leave our physical body and inherit on our spiritual reward, so to speak, but it also leads to a spirit, an accumulation inside time and space. The way it occurred to me in my sessions was I had an experience where I began to, all of my former lives began to come into me. They began to be integrated into my present awareness. It was like wrapping uh, a filament of white thread around a kite spool, just wrapping lifetime by lifetime around and around. And suddenly when it reached a critical mass, 
this spool of incarnated memories fused and there was an explosion of energy that threw my consciousness not only into a better life, individual life consciousness, but it threw me into a completely different order of consciousness, a post-human form of consciousness. I call this the birth of the diamond soul because the light that broke out when I went through this transition was a diamond light, just incredible, powerful, clear, strong uh, light, diamond light. To me, uh, I think what's happening is that when we die now and we go into a spiritual universe, we return to the identity of the soul, or some would say the oversoul, the consciousness that holds all of our all of our experiences for all of our incarnations. I think what's happening, if we keep this up, if we die and enter the soul consciousness and we're born into ego consciousness, we die to soul consciousness, we're born into ego consciousness. If we keep this up long enough, century after century, millennium after millennium, sooner or later, I think it happens that the soul wakes up on earth. The soul becomes fully conscious inside time and space, and it it kind of displaces the ego, our individual awareness, as our operating identity. We are no longer tempted to identify our true identity with our bodily identity, and the characteristics of our particular social, cultural condition, but we identify with that in us, that innate potential, natural potential, divine potential to become fully conscious inside time and space, not only outside time and space. I think we are waking up individually. I think some of the great Saints of our spiritual traditions uh, and our great leaders in spiritual traditions have been prototypes of waking up to this deeper project. But I think it's more than just individual. I think the entire species is waking up. The entire evolutionary dynamic is collective. And this evolutionary dynamic is taking taking us into a condition in which the entire human species is coming into an awakening of the reality of soul inside time and space. Once that happens, once we awaken to our true nature, we we live in a more porous rapport, a more porous communion with the surrounding divine consciousness. And we also live in a deeper sense of compassionate communion with people that we are with inside time and space, because when our soul consciousness awakens, so does the memory our, our intuitive memory of all the people that we have relationship with. And so we have a, a much deeper history to draw from. We have many, many more mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, friends and enemies than we've ever imagined possible before. And that opens a certain sense of deep collaboration and participation in the human species. So again, it's not an up and out. To open to the divine and to open to humanity are simultaneous consequences of the birth of the diamond soul inside time and space. And that's some of the writing that I'm focused on now inside the new book that's coming out uh, this fall, this November, uh, LSD in the Mind of the Universe. I just love that. It sounds a lot like integrating the chakras even, like having the awakening on the upper levels, but bringing it down to earth and embodying it. And yeah, I think that... um, that vision also of the collective of humanity being yeah. more awakened um, is beautiful and takes away that story that the earth is kind of like suffering and only suffering and that it's this illusion or this kind of test that will one day escape. Yeah. Um, but to imagine, yeah. yeah, bringing almost more of that heaven energy back down to earth. <laughs> That's right. Heaven on Earth. I mean, I think that's what the project is. That's kind of that early uh, theological intuition. We didn't even comprehend what that meant. But Heaven on Earth truly is the project, I think. And as we, when we begin to wake up, when our species makes this transition into an awake species, then watch what happens. Watch what we can do then. Then when the heart opens completely, 
the human race and all the species with whom we share this planet, they'll be safe from our mind. We will never use our mind to injure any other being. And so not only will our mind be capable of so much more because there'll be much easier facilitation, communion, exchange, downloading with the the deeper dimensions of collective mind, spiritual mind, but uh, the, the consequences of that download will be put to greater good. Everyone will be safe. Uh, we will purge ourselves of the hatreds and antagonisms of our history. Because right now, we're running around not just with our history outside of ourselves and our cultural institutions. We're running around with the history of humanity inside ourselves in the pains that we carry of our former life trauma in our soul. But I, I think that we have a tendency, I just wanted to mention this, probably should have mentioned this earlier. We have a tendency to think in reincarnation in terms of instincts which are cultivated from past life therapy. Uh, and that tends to create a negative set of expectations or interpretations of karma and reincarnation, like punishment, like we're trying to make up for what we didn't learn before or make up for failings in a previous life. And I think that's an unnecessarily negative take on reincarnation. People go into therapy because of their pain. But if we look at only the story of reincarnation that comes out of that context, we get an interpretation of karma that's skewed to negativity. Most of the students in most of the school systems in this country They don't fail their grades. Most of them pass, and they go on to more challenging situations in their next grade. Most human beings, I think, pass their karmic tests. Most of us, I think, are doing very well. And so we're always, we're not just paying back things we didn't do well. We're building on things that we did do well, south node, north node, you know, in the chart. We're building and becoming more, and we're self-challenging ourselves to develop capacities that are just capacities that uh, we may have seen, but we haven't mastered yet. Oh, totally. Like having talent in this life and things that come easy to us, I really think of things that we've cultivated in prior lives. Yeah, everything comes from somewhere. If we start with this premise, everything comes from somewhere. That means everything that stands out in our life comes from somewhere. It may not be all private. It may be part collective. But it comes from somewhere. Every set of skills we have and every set of bad habits we have, they come from somewhere. Now, I don't think there are any private virtues or private vices. If we have any problem, say, for example, um, lying, low self-esteem, greediness, you can't have those as purely private phenomena. They are connected to those strains within our collective culture. So we can work on them individually. And when we do, I think we actually are working simultaneously on two levels, on the private level and on the collective level, making a contribution to a collective progression. That's important. I feel like... um Without that distinction, I think sometimes people really struggle with doing individual work because they think about the collective and they want to do something for the collective and it feels selfish to do something personal, but they're so connected. And I think too, even the deeper that we go into our personal development, we can develop more compassion and desire to help other people as well. It's not that separate. I think so. In classic mystical teaching, one can have a profound influence in the wall on the world if one stays behind one's monastery walls and does deep, deep spiritual practice. You know, that's in, in all the religious traditions. To have a contemplative living near you is considered a great blessing because everything radiates out 360 degrees. So if you're cultivating deeper states of awareness and deeper states of compassion and blessing, that nourishes people around you uh, beyond your individual experience. And this was my experience, too, in my own psychedelic work. I mean, I was totally isolated. No one knew about my work. Because of the illegality of psychedelics, I had to be completely 
private about this. My students didn't know about it. My faculty members, a few friends did, but mostly they didn't know. But in my in this totally private work, I went, I would say probably the large majority of the uh, healing that took place was focused actually on collective dynamics, not on personal dynamics. There was personal healing, but a lot of the work was really focused on the collective. So it's, it isn't, it is a both and it's really not an either or, you know, there's a place for the personal work. There's a place for collective work, but ultimately those are not separate categories. Those are deeply integrated categories. So true. I'm wondering if, um, there's any more that you can say about your personal experience of encountering yourself as a soul and then navigating this lifetime or this identity in this mm. life and how you relate to navigating this incarnation with the knowledge that you have of your prior lives? Yeah. Well, I did do, uh, in addition to my psychedelic work, I did do some past life therapy. There was a period of a number of years when I wasn't doing psychedelic work. And so I I basically jumped into some past life therapy and I uncovered about a dozen former lives, worked with them. They worked with me. Uh, so I, I have a sort of a personal extended sense of personal history, um, but I don't think about it much and I don't get focused on it much. I think if you can become overly preoccupied with the specifics of your past and that can become a limiting set of beliefs and a set of circumstances. So I think it's good to work with the past, but to live in the present, uh, to live in a dynamic relationship with the present. Everything about your past that is relevant will come into your present. If you live your present deeply uh, and live it well, then you are transforming your past in the act of living well in the present and you're creating positive opportunities for your future. In my case, that personal soul exploration work uh, was combined in the psychedelic work by entering repeatedly into states of consciousness, which took me over and over again outside of my personal life into the larger tapestry of history, into deeper spiritual levels of consciousness, so that when I came back after these sessions into my time-space identity, it really was kind of like you were like dying in the work and then you're coming back and reabsorbing and taking on your physical existence again. And it's given me, by going through this process many times, it's given me a great deal of appreciation for the genius of creation for the genius that's actually created the conditions in which we exist, the genius of the deeper, deeper fabric of cause and effect and fabric of it connects us to each other's lives, connects us to our own soul through history. This is an incredibly brilliant, genius-laden system that we are part of. And I feel comfortable within that system even when I don't necessarily understand why it's operating the way it is, I've seen enough of its truth and enough of its genius to feel comfortable in it. And I feel patient in the early years. I mean, I'm 70 years old now, so I was doing this work when I was much younger, and I was very impatient to more, 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 you know, more spirituality, more transformation, more this, that, and the other. And that's all fine. That, that's good. But I, I think I'm a little more patient with the long and steady pull of our evolution through uh, engaging life carefully, consciously. Um, yeah, yeah. We're here for a long, for the long pull. And it's, you know, in Buddhism, they say, uh, the Buddha said, if you wanted to make real progress on your karma, uh, you should be like an ox, not a horse. Because a horse can run real fast, but if you want to get, if you got a cart stuck in the mud, Nothing beats an ox. Ox puts its head down and just cranks out a few inches at a time until eventually the cart is pulled out of the mud. I think that's true for karma, too. What's important is that we, we sit with who we are, the conditions and the challenges and opportunities we are facing right now, 
We engage them as completely as we possibly can, and we pull our life uh, forward inches, a feet, few feet at a time, a few yards at a time. Pretty soon, our cart's out of the mud. Pretty soon, we're on to a different set of issues. We're moving in a different direction again. That is incredibly inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. I am thinking mm-hmm. back to what you shared at the beginning about how before your Saturn return, you were deep into theology and you were on a certain path. And then at your Saturn return, you kind of became a blank slate and mm-hmm. tried out new ideas. And I think that that's really powerful, actually, like that choice to not be attached to what was familiar in the past if it was revealing mm-hmm. itself to no longer work. But it also makes me wonder mm-hmm. um, the way that I tend to look at experiences before the Saturn return is like past life reliving. And so mm-hmm. maybe some themes from your past, but um, so I was just mm-hmm. thinking about that. Um, but also to name that the, uh, the courage to try a new idea Um, or to explore a new path when there's something that you've already been doing is Mm -hmm. so expansive and can open up a whole new body of work like it has for you. So thank you for Mm -hmm. making that choice at your Saturn return and helping me understand karma and getting to share the books that you've written with my students. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's, It's wonderful. And it is challenging when you come to one of those pivot points and it's like it feels like you're risking everything. You know, it's like we know how to do this, but if we make this choice, we don't know how to do that, but that is still calling us. And so we gamble, we throw everything down, we, we make our choice to go into that. And if we if we choose well, engage fully, you know, it always works to our betterment, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. thank you for taking the time with us today. Um, I would love to here um so that book that is coming out when is it coming out how can people find it and they can find it on amazon amazon is taking orders now but it won't be released until november excuse me it won't be released for another uh till november 26 it's called lsd in the mind of the universe and the subtitle is diamonds from heaven lsd in the mind of the universe is the publisher's title But my heartfelt title is Diamonds from Heaven. It's a story of a 20-year psychedelic journey, uh, 73 high-dose LSD sessions conducted using Stan Groff's uh, protocol. Uh, It's basically a story of what happened on those 73 days and why it matters. It's a journey of cosmic exploration that begins in the very present circumstances of my life and eventually ends in what I call the diamond luminosity into the the pure state of dharmakaya, pure consciousness, diamond diamond transparency. So it's a long developmental process. So there is implicit in it a cosmology as I went deeper and deeper. took me a long time to understand what was happening a long time to process it and eventually write it down. Those 20 years of work were between 1979, when I was 30, and 1999, when I turned 50. And it took me another 20 years to fully process, digest, understand, integrate, and write down the story of that journey. So the story is being published 40 years after I began the journey and 20 years after I finished it. I think it's an exciting read. I hope your listeners will pick it up and take a look. Yes, and I will as well. I can't wait. And such a story of patience, too. Like, I'm not even 40 yet, so I can't uh, imagine. But, yeah, I'm probably still in that impatient phase. It's a one day at a time, one year at a time, but eventually all the things we work on accumulate if we stay focused and keep working at it. It's very true. Well, and so inspiring. Thank you so much for your time and sharing um, all that you've picked up. And I'm so glad that you wrote this book, too, and um, highly recommend your canon of books to anyone listening. So do you have um, a website or uh, actually, I'm just constructing the website now. It will be chrisbeish.com, but right now uh, that isn't up yet. 
but basically all of my uh, books can be found on Amazon. And uh, if they wanted to find articles that I've written, uh, they're all collected on academia.edu. It's a website for ac- in which academics share their publications. So academia.edu and then just Google uh, Chris Beche inside that website. And it'll, it'll turn up a page where it has all my articles. Perfect. I'll include that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Chris. Great. Sabrina, thank you for your work. Astrology is a very powerful vehicle. I think so too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would highly recommend going and reading Christopher Bache's works, whether that's um, those articles that he mentioned or Life Cycles, Reincarnation in the Web of Life. That's the one I started out with. I can't wait to read his new book. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please go leave a review on iTunes. It would really help a lot. It really helps the show's visibility and would help me to make this a sustainable project. So if you're enjoying it, please support me in that way. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. I'm so glad that we're on this journey together. And if we are to take into account some of the wisdom from this episode, the personal experience that I'm having and the personal experience that you're having are connected. We're on this journey side by side. Perhaps that may be inspiration to live in the best way that we can and to feel that no matter what it might look like at a superficial layer, we are very connected and personal growth matters. And is there really a distinction between the personal and the collective? You know, at some level, no. And then on a more kind of micro earthly kind of level, yes, there is. And how we choose to participate in the world is personal. And perhaps we go back and forth. You know, we have seasons where we're really healing, integrating, being, and seasons where we're more external and more participatory in the world. May we know in a deep embodied way in our souls how to show up to life. May we feel supported and nourished on this path. May we feel surrounded with love and resource in total abundance to learn our earth lessons with grace. And so it is. Much love to you. Thank you.